Kids, I hope you have a, a good time in the back. If you're remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to James. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a short section from James chapter 1, and then we're going to skip ahead uh, to James chapter 5. In sports, you've probably heard the term before called a, a fair weather fan. You've heard that term before. Uh, these are people who are uh, always there for the really good times when it comes to a team and often are quiet or absent during the really difficult times. Uh, some people call it jump, jumping on and off the bandwagon as a fan. Um, but the true fan, and also the very self-righteous one often, uh, the true fan is the one that stays true uh, through the ups and the downs. Uh, our current Baltimore Orioles might be a good example of that. Uh, when the Orioles are home right now, the stadium is packed, there's energy, there's excitement, everybody is thrilled. But about three years ago, I think you couldn't pay someone to go to a Baltimore Orioles fan. I remember going to uh, a couple of games where there was probably not even a few thousand people there. It's a great uh, reminder that it's really easy to find joy in a winning team when there's a packed stadium and everybody's excited. It's a lot harder uh, to find joy in a team that is losing and plays in an empty stadium. Well, that's going to make sense in a minute as we look at James. We've been, we've been looking at this book of James for two weeks now. Uh, James is one of the earliest letters written in the New Testament. It was meant to to be circulated amongst several different smaller churches all throughout the first century world. And if you're with us last week, we saw that James has a, a particular emphasis. Uh, he wants to emphasize the importance of works, of, of deeds, and of actions in order to prove the genuineness of one's faith. Uh, he seemed to be battling a sort of quietism, which is this idea that faith is only about our intellect and our doctrine and our understanding. But he comes along and he pleads, he argues that, that faith without uh, the attending works of love and obedience and service, uh, faith without those things is useless. It, it has no life to it. But you might be sitting here and you think, well, I'm, I'm a very sort of tactile and practical thinker. Well, you're in luck because James is a, a very tactile and, and concrete and practical book. And what James does is he fleshes out what he means by all of this in very descriptive ways. And we're going to see that this morning. Uh, but one piece of this puzzle comes in our passage this morning. And it has to do with finding joy even in the most unlikely of places, even in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of trials, and the midst of, in, the, in the midst of loss. And so to see that theme, we're going to start with John, uh, James chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses just 2 to 4, and then I'm going to skip ahead to James chapter 5. One of the things you'll see is James sort of skips around all throughout his letter, uh, hitting different themes at different points. And so we'll do that each week as we look at the book of James. So starting in uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Now skipping ahead to chapter 5, verse 7, and I'll read through verse 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, uh, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard about the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is God's word. Father, we're so thankful for the the gift of worship, the opportunity to gather together. And as we just sung, Holy Spirit, we invite your presence uh, with us here this morning. Father, we confess that we come often with um, hard hearts and distracted hearts. And so we pray that you would would soften our hearts this morning as we approach you um, in your word and that we would hear your voice uh, through the instrument of your word and that you would shape us, mold us more and more into your image as we encounter you in worship. We lift all this up in Christ's name. Amen. So James, uh, in this book, is writing to a church that um, is really struggling. Uh, Everybody in the church seemed to be struggling in James' day. And a lot of it had to do with issues uh, surrounding economic disparity that the church and its parishioners were really dealing with. Uh, His audience was, by and large, mostly struggling with poverty But they were struggling with poverty while there was several people all around them that had an inordinate amount of wealth. Uh, It was a culture where wealth and power were localized in a small few sort of people, while the rest of the culture, some people think upwards of 90% of the culture, really struggled day by day just to get by. And if that wasn't bad enough, the rich seemed to be oppressing the poor, sort of stepping on their necks um, in order to get ahead. And the poor probably included the vast majority of James' audience, and they were suffering as a result of it. We're going to talk about that economic disparity a little bit more as the weeks go. But James just doesn't localize his words here for only those people who were struggling financially, and we've all been in those places before, but he's really talking about anybody that has any manner of trials or difficulty in their life. Um, Financial troubles, uh, physical troubles, economic troubles, emotional uh, troubles, uh, circumstantial troubles, all of the above is what James is really talking about here. And knowing all this, he makes the argument that the genuineness or the legitimacy of our faith is proven by our joy. But of course, we know everybody can be joyful when life is going well, when things seem to be humming along nicely. But James argues that true faith in God finds joy in any and all circumstances, even in trials of all sorts of different kind and variety, and that this is the very power 
of our counterintuitive faith. And so to prove this, what James does is he uses an illustration and then two examples to, I think, make two points about how to find joy as people of faith, even in the midst of difficulty and loss and trials. The first point he makes is this, that true faith finds joy even in trials because of the hope of heaven, because true faith knows how all of this is going to end. And so he starts with an illustration in verse 7 of chapter 5 about a farmer. He says this, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Until it receives the early and the late rains, so you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So his point is that true faith is patient even in the midst of trials. Why? Because it understands the final chapter of the story. Now we all know that patience is a virtue. We've heard that before. Um, But I'm often keenly aware that while patience is a virtue, it's not one of my virtues in life. Uh, I am not a very patient person. Uh, I'm not a fan of amusement parks, and and that's for lots of reasons. But one is because I hate waiting in line at amusement parks for rides, hate doing that. Uh, Traffic very often is the bane of my existence. My kids will tell you I hate traffic of all sorts of kinds. I was never a fan of group work because I disliked having to wait for other people to complete their tasks. Uh, The MVA, the Department of Motor Vehicles, uh, do I need to say anything more? Uh, The MVA, while much better now, um, used to be awful. I think I still have a certain measure of PTSD from times uh, waiting at the MVA. And so the list could go on and on about the things I get very impatient about. But I will tell you that when I'm going through difficulty or some sort of trouble or some sort of challenge, uh, I feel doubly impatient about life. I just want this thing that I'm going through to be over so I can just move on as quickly as possible. And maybe you're a little bit like me. Well, James comes along and he says, true faith is like a mature farmer who patiently does the work that is required, who struggles with the dirt, struggles with the elements, struggles with the monotony of his job, knowing that one day it will all pay off. You see, the farmer, at least the mature one, uh, lives with things that he can control and accepts the things he cannot control. He cannot control the weather and the timing of things, but he can control his effort and his attitude in the midst of it. And so a lot of our impatience or even our lack of joy in trials, I think, comes from what it reminds us. And trials often remind us uh, about issues of control, that we are actually not as in control of our lives as we like to think we are. See, most of us live with this subtle belief that we know better or could do things better and more efficiently, but then life throws us all sorts of situations that remind us that we are out of control of a lot of things, some of which are our own doing, some are the random things that come at us in life, but these are situations that often leave us feeling helpless. 
Uh, They leave us feeling impatient, and they certainly don't leave us with feelings that we would call joy. But James comes along and says that true faith finds joy no matter what the circumstance is. Now, I think this is more than just being optimistic about life or some sort of blind optimism. I think this is more than just you know, what people have called uh, the power of positive thinking. And I think this is more than just a sort of disembodied stoicism that some people employ when they deal with challenges in life. Because true faith in God knows how it will all end at the end of the story. You see, the farmer waits patiently because he knows inevitably that the harvest is coming and that it will come Well, faith clings to the truth that the Lord at the end will return. True faith clings to the fact that there is a heaven and that heaven is very real and that it will be an existence that that is absent of pain and of sadness. It's an existence in which God will wipe away every single tear from from our eyes. And so as long as the days seem in this life, it will pale in comparison to the eternal joy and bliss that awaits believers in Jesus Christ. Many of you know that I've I've crossed, uh, I've coached cross country for for over two decades now, and I've coached middle schoolers and, and high schoolers and college kids in cross country. And so what that means is I've been to a whole lot of cross country meets in my life. Uh, but no matter, and, and, but, but I've seen this at every level and almost in every race, no matter how empty an athlete might feel in the midst of the race, once they see that finish line, once it sort of gets in their view and in their eyesight, they always find a little bit something left to get them across that finish line. Uh, scientists have studied this, exercise physiologists uh, have studied this over the years. There's something to the fact that when the mind knows that the race is about to be done, it finds just a little bit more in order to persevere. Well, friends, I don't have to tell you that our lives are short. Whether you're sitting in this room and you'd call yourself young or whether you're sitting in this room and and you'd consider yourself old, the finish line, when you think about it, is right around the corner for all of us. And what that means is that if you are Christ, that means that infinite joy and bliss awaits you on the other side. But in Christ, you can even taste a little bit of that joy now as you patiently wait for its culmination. So James' point is clear here. True faith finds joy even in trials because true faith knows all about the finish line that is approaching. The second thing I think James wants us to see is this. True faith finds joy even in trials because it knows what God can produce through them. It knows what God can produce through them. You see, our trials, as we said before, leave us feeling out of control of the elements of our life. But true faith recognizes that as as much as we can feel out of control with the different elements of our lives, we serve and worship a God who is in control of all things. 
What that means is whatever trial you're facing right now, it's not random. It's not purposeless. It, It has a point to it. And God is actually doing something through that trial. Just as he redeems our lives through the power of the gospel, he also redeems our trials and the circumstances and the events of our lives. And so what James does, he provides us two examples of this. He talks to us about uh, the prophets. And if you've ever studied the prophets at all, the prophets had a terrible job. It was a very, very hard job. It was often a job that was given to them by God. They didn't get to choose it. It just sort of came and they had to do it. Some of the prophets had to do really bizarre things in order to prove their point to the people. Um, They were generally hated by the kings and the rulers of their day, often thrown in prison. Sometimes they were executed for their job. And, And the essence of it was that they had a very burning, important message and they knew that everybody was gonna ignore them when they shared that message to them. They had a difficult job and yet they patiently endured through that job every step of the way. The second example James talks about is Job. If you studied poor Job in the scriptures ever before, you know if anybody had a difficult existence, it was Job. He never knew about the cosmic drama that happened behind the scenes that played out between God and Satan. He never knew why he lost his family, never knew why he lost his wealth and his possessions, and yet it seems like all of them in a moment were stripped away from his life. His friends, his well-meaning friends came along telling him, just curse God and die. And, and Job wasn't afraid to be honest before God. He shared his complaints and his grumbling before God, but he refused to curse God. He remained steadfast, even in the midst of tragedy that you and I would say is unspeakable to endure. And so the question is, how did Job do it? How did the prophets do it? How can you and I find joy in the midst of our trials? Well, verse 3 says this. And you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's James really saying here? He's saying God is doing something in the midst of the trials. He's drawing you closer to him, molding you more and more into his image and those trials if we are able to find the strength to patiently endure will produce in us steadfastness we can find joy because in the circumstances of our lives we're becoming more like Jesus growing more and more into his image Eugene Peterson said our faith develops out of the most difficult aspects of our existence not the easiest. You know, that's true about life. It's certainly true about faith. And we've all learned this lesson that we often learn the most when we go through the hardest of times. There was a group in church history called the ascetics. And these were um, interesting folks. 
the asceticism is true in lots of faith traditions, but it was certainly true in this chapter of Christianity. And they took this belief that we grow more in our faith through suffering. They took this belief to the extreme. They would actually seek out suffering. They'd uh, see how long they could go without food or sex or, or pleasures in life and, and suffer intentionally. Some would take it so extreme. There's stories of, of people sitting on poles and starving themselves to, uh, to, to, to almost nothing. And they did all this as an attempt to find suffering because they knew through getting suffering, uh, through going and enduring through suffering, they could grow closer to God. But I think we all know that we don't have to really go looking for suffering in our lives. Often life in a world that has fallen, that is cast into sin, uh, it is full of moments and seasons of suffering, whether we go looking for them or not. I think what we have to be cognizant of is what is perhaps the opposite error, and that's the, the error of hedonism, which is far more common in our culture today. This is the idea that we pursue pleasure at all costs and we avoid pain as much as we possibly can. And in the process, what we do is we avoid the shaping effect that suffering can have on our lives. Again, I don't think we need to go looking for suffering. It finds us no matter what. And that's why C.S. Lewis's words that have become very well known are apt to this discussion as well. He wrote this, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But here's what's so beautiful. We can even find joy in the midst of our pain because we know it is all part of God's plan, a God who loves us and deeply cares for us. We can take comfort in knowing that even our pain is part of God's plan and his purposes. He's even using it for our good. And so the the writer of Hebrews comes along and commands us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that even Jesus experienced joy at the cross. Why? Because he knew that it would bring us closer to him. And so that means for us that we can find joy in our trials. Why? Because they bring us closer to him. A few years ago, there was a a really well-known apologist that spoke at at Johns Hopkins University. And I went to go see him, and I think a few of you were were with me uh, as well when we went to go and and see him. And there were thousands of people there to hear this well-known apologist. And and the, the topic he was speaking on was the nature of faith and suffering, the very thing that that James is talking about here. And so he waxed eloquently and impressed everyone with his intellectual prowess and his, his sort of rock-solid arguments throughout. Um, and afterwards, they had um, a, a question and answer time with not just 
the speaker, but uh, his whole team of apologists. And I'll never forget um, that during this question and answer time, uh, there was lots of people that came up and had questions, but towards the very end, you could see a a woman with a very recognizable limp um, walking up to the microphone. And she said, I have a question for you. She said, years ago, I uh, prayed that God would make himself feel more real to me. And she said, Every sin, ever since I've uh, prayed that prayer, nothing but tragedy has happened to me. And she went through this list of all these tragedies that have happened to her ever since she prayed that prayer. And so at the very end, she says to this very famous apologist, she says, can you tell me why? Can you tell me why I've suffered so much ever since I prayed that prayer? And the apologist, I thought, gave a great answer. Uh, said to her, uh, ma'am, I can't tell you why you've suffered so much. But all I can tell you is that we serve a God who's acquainted with our sufferings. One who leapt, wept at, the, at the, the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He is a God who is acquainted with our suffering. A God who suffered himself and a God who is with us, even in the midst of our suffering. He might not give you answers to your suffering, but he gives you himself. He gives you his presence. And from that presence comes great joy. So friend, just as you're sitting here this morning, uh, what are you going through right now? What's that sort of trial that comes to mind immediately as you hear sermons like this? What's the thing that's uh, causing you anxiety? What's the thing that's keeping you awake at night at 1, 2 a.m. in the morning, keeping you from sleep? True faith doesn't grumble and complain about it. If it does, it takes those grumblings and those complainings to God, just like Job did. In fact, James says in chapter 5, if anyone among you is suffering... Let him pray. Let him pray. True faith doesn't seek out retribution. It it trusts in God as the judge. But true faith proves its genuineness by finding joy in the midst of struggle. By finding joy in the midst of trials. It's characterized by joy both in fair weather and in foul weather. How does it do this? By knowing how it all ends, by knowing that our struggles and our pains have a purpose, and by clinging to Jesus' presence every single step of the way.